And one of our uh, family's favorite movies when the kids were small, and I probably still is today, is, is, the, is the story of, of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, you know, Willy Wonka, and, and not the kind of weird Johnny Depp, you know, version, but, but the, you know, the kind of zany, charming, you know, little kooky Gene Wilder version. And, and, uh, and in, in, that, in that movie, there's these different characters, and, and the kids um, are all representing, you know, kids that were brought up by different kinds of parenting, and usually not good parenting. And, and it was a commentary. It's a commentary not just on parenting and, and raising kids, but it was also a commentary on society and, and especially Western and American culture. And, and it was, so it's much more than just this kind of entertaining story. I'm not going to tell you that my children and I sat around discussing the deeper themes and philosophical you know, underpinnings of the movie. We just enjoyed watching candy and you know, people turning into blueberries and things like that. But in that movie, there's that one character, and my daughter, one of my daughters, played this character, and, and um, her famous line was, I want it now. I want it now. And that was, it wasn't just that I want it. It's one thing to want it, but I want it now. Again, it was a commentary, not just on how we spoil our kids, but it was a commentary on what our culture was becoming. This movie's coming out in the 60s and 70s, and, and hadn't, you know, at that time, we didn't even know what, what the world was going to be like now. But, but back then, it was beginning to be this age of the instant, you know, instant whatever, instant coffee, you know, and, um, you know, you started to have the, the microwaves were starting to, to, to make their advance into our homes, and, and the fast food culture was developing, and everything was now, 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 and of course, even more so, that's the case. I remember my, my dad, when um, he was talking about uh, something like this in one of his messages, and he and he said, you know, he would be at, he would go to like McDonald's and he would get really irritated because it was taking so long. You know, I, I, sometimes when I get irritated at places like McDonald's, I'm like, I come here for one reason, because it's fast. It's not because it's great. It's not because it's nutritious. It's because it's fast. And if you can't make fast, why am I here, right? And so my dad was the same way. And, and he said one day he decided to do an experiment. He actually timed them. And then he realized what he thought was a long time was like two minutes, maybe three. And he's like, I'm that impatient, that impatient that I can't get my food in less than three minutes and I'm, you know, want to rage. I want it now. We, we complicate this of wanting things now by messing up this whole idea of what we actually want. And I was talking to someone recently about this, and, and you know, I was thinking about this, and I, I've been in different countries like Kenya and Haiti, which are sometimes called cultures of scarcity. In other words, they, 
You know, they don't have enough, especially in Haiti. They don't have a lot of things. And, and how people behave and interact in a culture of scarcity is a little different. And, and we don't really know that for most of us. Maybe some of you experienced some of this in your life. But for the most part in the United States, we live in a culture of abundance. There's more than enough. And so culture of scarcity, culture of abundance, what's the difference? Well, when I think of culture of scarcity, people really want what they need. If you give somebody for Christmas something they need, they're happy because it's what they want. They just want to have their needs met. And so they're happy. It's done. You've met their need. But in the culture of abundance which is what we live in, we need what we want. We don't really need it, but we want it. And because we want it, we believe that we need it. And because, because our need is being driven by what we want, we will never be satisfied. We will always want something else. We will always want more. And so you have this culture of scarcity when people want what they need and when they get what they need, they're satisfied. And then you have us in our culture and where we, we want, but we believe that what we want is what we need. And we live in a very unsatisfied culture. You mix that in with, I want it now. And we are a, a culture that's marked by impatience. Like my dad, you know, saying, you know, three minutes was too long to wait for a hamburger. It's too long. At least that's how we feel. We want solutions now. We look to our political leaders, we, we, we vote for them, we, they come into office, and if they don't provide immediate solutions, we're like, bring on the next person. Get rid of this person, bring on the next person. We want solutions. We don't, we don't like to wait. You know, I've, I've started to think about this. I'm, I'm not quite to the age yet, but I'm getting to this age. I love sports, and I love certain sports teams, and I realize when I get a little bit older, and when, when the coach or the general manager, the owner of my favorite team, like say, like, like I like the Dallas Cowboys, and if they say, we're, we're gonna be rebuilding. For the next five years, we're gonna be rebuilding. If I do not believe I have five years to live, then I never get to see the rebuilding finished, right? It's time for me to find another team. That's winning now. But we don't like when someone is taking a long approach. We, we want it now. We, we look at, you know, uh, kind of a successful University of Hawaii football season. It didn't end so well yesterday. But compared to last year, it's so much better. Compared to three years ago, it's way better. But we want everything now, now, now. 
It's a problem. When we're in a culture marked by impatience, and when our problems become more and more difficult, and we become more and more desperate, the problem is, is that we will, we will quickly hold on to and grab and gravitate towards quick fixes instead of ones that will actually work. Is the, it's the world we live in. It's not new. It's just become more and more prominent. And we're all kind of affected in some way or another. But when we look at this text today, we've been talking about the gifts, the gift of faithfulness. We've been talking about if you want to give God something, you give God faithfulness. And faithfulness is not simply, oh, I believe in you, God. Oh, God, you're a good God. That's awesome. Faithfulness is that, that day-to-day, hour-by-hour, moment-by-moment, living for Christ. Constantly seeking after Him. Not giving up hope. When you trip and you fall down, you, you get back up. It's faithful. And if you, if you want to give a gift to God... That's the gift that he wants. He wants faithfulness. And I hope that, that when you're hearing this, you're not just, you're not just thinking like, oh, no, those are nice words. Or, you, or you're looking for some, some secret meaning, some deeper meaning. No, that's it right there. Be faithful. As we talked about a few weeks ago, what this world needs is this world needs more people who are faithful. Instead of people who... who who change what they believe, the way they change their shoes, or they change churches, you know, like they're they're picking out a new car. Be faithful. Be faithful. Be faithful to, to, to be a disciple. Be faithful to live as a disciple. Be faithful to know God's word and to live his word and to seek after his faith, his face. Be faithful. You see, Faithfulness goes against impatience. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Because we're going to look at two people in, in, in the Bible that maybe you've heard a little bit about, but maybe you don't know much about. And we're going to look at them because they were faithful. And had they been like us, impatient, they would have missed out on the most wonderful blessing of their lives. I think we have a video about these do we? Yes. Honestly, how many of you know who they are, know much about them? Some of, our, some of our people, they did, and it took Gail a second, and then 
jump-started her brain, and then she knew who Simeon was, right? It's good, because she's right. Simeon and, and Anna. And as, as we talk about them, I want you to, to keep in your, your mind that second question. How long would you wait? If God told you this is his plan, his will for your life, this is what he's going to do, how long would you wait? The text that we're going to read, you know, it's this text that it's right there in the, in the, the story of the birth of, of Christ in Luke. And, and as you know, for more than 60 years, the people of Israel have been looking for, for someone to save them from the Romans. And why is this important to this story? It's important to this story because Simeon and Anna are old enough to have known when Israel was free when Israel was a sovereign nation. So they knew that. And they were there, maybe in their late teens or early 20s, when the Romans came in and conquered them. And now they've lived all of their adult life under Roman domination. So they've seen the whole transition. It's not something they heard about. It's not the oh, long time ago we used to be free. It's like, no, they knew it. They lived in it. And it's these two, these two that we're going to meet here. So in Luke chapter 2, verses 22 to 33, it says, And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, it's talking about um, Jesus and Mary here, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin and then as a widow until she was 84 she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to thank, give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So think about this. Think about if that, the angel had not appeared to Joseph or appeared to Mary. 
And they just have Jesus. And they show up at the temple. So what happened? Would have, what, what, would, what would they have thought about what happened? Show up at the temple, and this crazy old guy just comes up and grabs their baby and starts saying all this stuff. I'm pretty sure Joseph would have gotten kind of defensive at this point. Protective. He wants to protect his baby. Mary probably would have been freaking out about it. But I think they're used to it by now. You know, they've had angels show up. They had these shepherds show up. These wise men came from afar. They've had assurance after assurance. And so this is just another one. Another one that, that confirms that, that what they heard still still true, still going to happen. And so we look at these two, Simeon and, and Anna, and, and both of them are, are, are portrayed as being old. We actually get Anna's age. She's 84 years old. And I think when we look at this, one of the things that we see from these two who are, who are presented to us as, as pictures of faithfulness one of the ways that you know, some scholars think that you can know that someone in one of these stories in the gospel became a really strong Christian and continued to be part of the church after uh, the crucifixion and the resurrection is because we have their names. So of all the people that, that Jesus healed, one of the few names we have is this guy named Bartimaeus. And why do we have his name? Why don't we have the names of others who Jesus healed? Why Bartimaeus? And the belief is it's because people knew who Bartimaeus was. Same thing here. By mentioning Simeon and Anna by name, people knew who they were. They knew their names. They weren't just two people. They were people that everybody would have known who was who's there reading this and understanding. If they didn't know them, they could go verify. They could say, who is this Simeon guy? It's like, oh, that's the guy. He used to always come to the temple all the time. And every time he wanted to talk about, you know, that, that God was going to raise up this Savior. He was going to raise up the Messiah. Who is that Anna? Oh, man, she was, every day she's over there. Every day she's at the temple. She's constantly praying constantly fasting. People knew who they were. And, and what that meant was they were, they were being held up as examples. They were being held up as not made-up examples, not some analogy, not some fictional story, but as real-life examples. And they're being held up here as examples of the faithful the faithful who are willing to wait for God's solution, no matter how long it takes. They're willing to wait. They're not impatient. Sixty years have passed, and they've had to live every single one of those years. They've lived every second in those years. They've seen the Romans come and go, They've seen good Roman governors and really bad ones. 
They've seen times when, when the Roman soldiers treated the Jewish people unjustly. They've lived through it for 60 years. And on top of it, it describes Simeon here as being righteous and devout. He's righteous and he's devout. He's, he's devoted. He, he, wants, he wants all that God has promised for his people to be true. He, he believes in, in this, this thing of, of holiness and, and of the law. And here are these unclean Gentiles. They're not just there in the city. That was okay. It would have been okay for that because the Bible always talks about you know, welcoming the sojourner, welcoming the stranger, welcoming the Gentile into your city, even into your home. But that wasn't the problem. The problem was is that they were in control. They were in control of God's city. They were in control of the city where the temple was. They were in control of what was supposed to be the promised land. And there were these, these, these unclean, unholy Gentiles. And this was, would have been really difficult, kind of messing with, with, with some of the, the, the Jewish uh, leaders' minds, especially the ones that, that really believed in that, 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 that this is God's promise to them. How could he let such evil people be so successful? How could he let them be in power over them? How is that possible? And here's Simeon. He's a righteous person. He's not sitting there approving of what the Romans are doing. In fact, he probably finds it pretty reprehensible. But he's waiting. He's waiting. He's not pretending like everything's good. He's not pretending like, like there's, there's no problems, no persecution, no injustice. He's not pretending it's not there, but he's waiting. He, if anybody, could have been kind of, you know, somebody who could have been impatient. He could have been looking at younger people who were probably so much more impatient than him, and he could have told them, look, you wait half as long as I wait, then you can be impatient. But until then, you know, be patient. Could have. Could have. But he doesn't. He's faithful. He's not upset that God doesn't act now. And you know, in those 60 years, Simeon probably heard all kinds of rumors. Because we know, not just before Jesus is, is born, but we know after Jesus is born, and even after the resurrection, that, that there would be these, these different Jewish leaders that would, that would get a following. And and they would start saying all the right things and, and, and they would get enough people to, to say, let's go. Let's take on those Romans. He probably heard every plan. He heard about every single one of these that would rise up. He wasn't naive. He wasn't living in a cave somewhere. 
And I'm sure every time he heard one of these solutions, he probably asked the question like, God, is this the one? Is this the one? But no. It's not until he sees this baby Jesus. He doesn't even see, you know, Jesus the carpenter. He doesn't see, you know, the adult Jesus. He's the baby. And he knows. And he says, Now, God, now I can die. I can die because I've seen your salvation. I've seen your salvation. Now, there's something about this waiting. You know, um, Eric earlier read that verse from, from the uh, Isaiah, the Old Testament, that has that, that line that was turned into a song. Um, they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall walk and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. We, we see that. And, and some people think waiting means just being passive, sitting around saying, okay, God, I'm going to wait till you tell me what to do. But that's not what we see Simeon and Anna doing. We see Simeon and Anna are, are doing really what that's talking about, which is, which is actively waiting. Actively waiting. Actively waiting by, by doing what they already knew God wanted them to do. They already knew God wanted them to be at the temple. They already knew that God wanted them to, to listen to the Holy Spirit. They already knew that God wanted them to pray. They already knew that, and they were doing that faithfully. And because they were doing that faithfully, their waiting wasn't simply waiting around. Sometimes that's, I think, what God wants from us. You know, back when I was a teenager, back in the late 70s, early 80s, if you had a Christian like college or youth conference, and then you had seminars, there were always three that were the most popular. Okay? One was something about prophecy, end-time prophecy. Oh, everybody want to go to that one. The other one was about sex. Because, you know, every Christian wanted the answer to the burning question, how far is too far? Right? That was always, we wanted to know what the Bible talked about, sex. And then the third one was, what is God's will for my life? How do I know God's will for my life? And when people ask that question, what they're really asking for is, is like, what is the big plan for my life? But here was the problem. They were asking for the big plan. They're asking for the big will from God but they weren't willing to do what they already knew. They already knew that the Bible was telling them, be in the Word, know the Word. They already knew that the Bible was telling them to, to pray. They already knew that the Bible was telling them to be part of a healthy church. Grow in your faith, help others to grow. 
But they're sitting around wanting some big answer from God, wanting to go to a seminar where somebody will unlock the secrets, where they can pray, and then God will write across the sky, you know, I, you know, I want you to be, you know, whatever it is, and that's going to be up there. That's what they wanted. But they weren't willing to do the things they already knew. Why do we ask God for more, more, bigger, when we're not willing to do what he's already asked us to do? Simeon and Anna, that's not how they are. They're they're doing those things every day for decades, just showing up and praying and seeking every day. It's amazing. It's this active waiting. It's doing what we already know God wants us to do. I, I meet, you know, Christians who, who don't feel that they need to be faithful to the church. They're like, oh, I'm faithful to God. Yep. You know, I listen to Christian radio. I got some books. I watch some TV. Listen to podcasts. I got this really good thing, you know, between me and God. And I'm faithful. I try to be a good person. I try to do what it says. But they think being part of a church and being a a healthy, connected part of the church, they think that's optional. I don't know how this got into the church. I don't know how this got into American Christianity, that the church was optional. That the faith that we live together is somehow inferior to the faith I can live on my own. Let me tell you, I may not have studied the Bible more than all of you, but I've studied it enough to know that's the opposite of what the Bible teaches. The Bible doesn't teach that, we, that, that the, the, the highest end of life is that, is that we all have this individual relationship with God, that we all can kind of go our way and be holy and pious. That the Bible teaches the opposite, that when we truly become Christians, when we truly have God's Spirit in our lives, we cannot help but want to be connected with other Christians in the body of Christ. Instead, we think of it like like it's a chore. Like, oh, I got to go hang out with those people again. I got to get up. I got to go to another meeting. Oh, no, somebody wants to have lunch. They want to have coffee. They care about me. Ah, just leave me alone. Just let me keep my nice life with God. Let me do the things I want to do and serve the way I want to serve. God says, no. I called my people together. And if you're one of mine, then you are my people. We're faithful. We're faithful in doing all that God has laid before us. 
What's going to, to kill Christianity in the next generations is not unbelief. There's, there's a lot of what's happening with our younger generations where they're just living out the logical conclusions that their parents and grandparents have told them. And that is that church is optional. Church is not an essential part of being a Christian. It's optional. And so you know what they're going to do? They're going to exercise the option. Why aren't more teenagers and college students, not just here, but anywhere, Why do they only want to go to a service where there's other college students and other teenagers? Why don't they want to be part of a healthy church where they interact with diverse ages, diverse socioeconomic status, diverse education levels? Why don't they? Because they learned it from their parents that it's optional. It's not optional. The reason I've been talking about a healthy church is because I want to be part of a healthy church. And I want us to be a healthy church. Not because, oh, it'll be a great achievement, I can hang on my wall, look, healthy church accomplishment. But because it's what I believe I need most. I need to be part of a healthy church. It's what I believe you need most. You need to be part of a healthy church. If you're ever going to really embrace what it means to be a Christian in its fullness, you need to be part of a healthy church. But let me tell you something else. It's what our community needs. It's what our world needs. They need to see healthy communities Healthy churches, they want to see it. They don't want to see some some kind of fake thing where we're just all fake nice to everybody. They can get that anywhere. They can go to Disneyland, get that. We can all just put on big animal heads with smiles that we can't take off, right? That's kind of what some people think, like that's what... That's what the world needs to see. No, they need to see real. They need to see me with my flaws so that they can see you with your grace. They need to see me make mistakes so they can see you forgive me. We need to see it. God has brought so many people to to our church who, who are not Christians. And it's almost like they're waiting and they're hoping. They want to see something that's different. Something that's real. They want to see it. That's why. That's why we need to be faithful to the church. Faithful to each other. The other thing we see here with Simeon is that the faithful recognize when God's answer shows up. Simeon, he takes Jesus in his arms and looks at what he calls him. He says, he's he's the salvation. But he understands 
something that a lot of his contemporaries didn't understand, that the salvation wasn't going to come from this, this baby growing up to be this great a military, you know, political leader. Look at what he says. He says, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. I don't know all that Simeon understood, but I think Simeon understood this. Simeon understood that this wasn't about war. This wasn't that in 20, 25, 30 years that that this baby was going to grow up to be this military hero. I think he understood. I think he understood what the angel had said earlier, that, that you shall call him Emmanuel, God with us. I think he realized that the salvation of the world hinged on the world being able to see who God really is and that God is not God just because he's more powerful than us. That he's not, he's not worthy of worship just simply because he can squash us if he feels like it. No. What Jesus came to reveal to us about God is that God is love. Not this worldly, emotional, whatever love that we call love. But it's what we've been talking about. This, this supernatural love. This love that we couldn't possibly do on our own. He sees it. He probably doesn't know it. He doesn't understand it. But he knows it's going to be hard because what Jesus has come to do is not win the game. He's not there to to become more powerful and, and get rid of the Romans through power. He's come to change the game. He's come to change all the rules. He's come to say the future, the hope, is not simply the strongest win, the strongest survive. But the future and the hope is when we, when we stop defining ourselves by who's the strongest. And that we come together and we're bound together by His love. Simeon recognizes it. And finally, we see at the, at the end, both with Simeon and, and with Anna, we see that they, they, they're blessing the parents. They're giving thanks. They're rejoicing. When he's saying, I get to depart in peace, he's not sad about that. It's almost like he's been hanging on every day. You know, and he's this old man, and, and he's you know, going to the temple every day. And he's hanging on. And he's probably tired and old and his body's kind of broken down. But he hangs on. Because he wants to see the Savior. He wants to see the one who the Lord would send. And when he does, he rejoices. 
He rejoices. And he rejoices not because he's stupid and he's, he's not rejoicing because he's naive. He's not rejoicing because he doesn't really see how bad the problem is. He rejoices because he knows that the God he has always known, the God he has studied, the God he has seen work with his people for thousands of years, the God that he remembered in the Passover and he remembered in the, in the, in the other feasts of, of God going and, and bringing redemption, he believes in this God so much that it doesn't matter how big the problem is. This is God's Messiah. And that's all. That's all he needed to know. And he rejoices. I think that's the challenge for us. I know it's the challenge for me. I have no problem doing the work of ministry. I have no problem doing the teaching, studying the Bible, doing all the things of being a pastor, visitation, counseling, all the the meetings. I have no problem doing that. As a matter of fact, I'd rather do that than do nothing, than just sit around and be bored. I like my life to be complicated and kind of exciting. It's good. But can I do it with joy? That's often the challenge. And I think that's the challenge for all of us. I think some of us are okay with doing, but can we do these things with joy? And again, not a naive joy, not a joy that doesn't realize how difficult the problem is, how much it will take. But will we always be marked by joy? That's the faithfulness. Faithfulness is not just the, oh man, I gotta show up again. Back at the mine. You know, it's not that. It's not just that. It's the joy of knowing that God chose to use you. He chose to use me. He chose to use us. He chose to bring us together. It's the joy in knowing that even if our whole point of existence is is to move God's kingdom forward one inch, we take great joy in that inch. And we do it with all we are. Because we know that God's kingdom is coming. And that should give us joy. And that's my prayer. My prayer for you is that you will see the importance of faithfulness to God. And you will see the importance of joyfully, joyfully doing all that God lays before us.